Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 114, and July 2016, I started this podcast, and here we are, 114 episodes later. So crazy and wonderful. Thank you for continuing to help support Hey Human. I appreciate it so much. I love doing it. There's a lot of really exciting things coming. On this episode, Greg Rude and I sat down and talked about his extraordinary experience uh, with his family. And I don't want to give too much away because I hate doing that. And I feel like I sometimes do that in the preamble. And, you know, conversations are adventures. I want you to go on them uh, with me. And uh, I don't want to give too much away, as I said. So suffice it to say... uh, Greg is a really uh, awesome guy, and it was interesting because the the conversation focused around an experience that he had with his family, and most specifically his mom. And the weekend that we sat and talked, I was having some pretty wild and woolly experiences of my own with my mom, and it was really, um, how do I put it, it was really pulling at my heartstrings. The relationships between mother and child have always been something, maybe a little bit of a mystery. Uh, my mom is very bright, but she's very much, you know, does her own thing. And I would not call her motherly. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I, anytime I hear stories about moms and children, I am engrossed in general. So this story is no different, and it was really wonderful of Greg to share it with me. Uh, and from my understanding, this is the first time he's shared this story anywhere. So I feel very honored that he decided to be on Hey Human. If you want to see a picture of Greg and his mom, I'll put that on the Facebook page um, on Hey Human Podcast on Facebook. And also I'll add it to the poster on, under the Hey Human Podcast Instagram So, you know, you can do, excuse me, multiple pictures on Instagram now. So just swipe around and you'll see pictures of Greg and his mom. In other news, just a reminder that Hey Human is listener supported. I don't do ads, so like PBS or something. I want to remind everybody that if you are so inclined, there is a donate button on the heyhumanpodcast.com website. Uh, I think it's under the store, actually, because I just... uh, my friend Ren, uh, Ren Free, who's great, helped me rework the website a little bit, and I believe that's now there. Um, anyway, and in the store also is the poster for Hey Human, and I'm really proud of that. I think it turned out beautifully. So if you are into posters, maybe like some artwork for the wall to be framed, please uh, check out Hey Human podcast poster there on the website. Uh, As a reminder, I also have tons of links on the links page. Definitely check that out. (laughs) Last week's, there were so many links because, you know, it's a really interesting topic, UFOs and abductions. This week, um, it's more... mm, I don't want to give away. See there, I almost gave it away again. This suffice it to say that every episode gets its own pile of links. So don't forget to check out the links page because... I really enjoy putting all that information up there, and uh, I hope you enjoy 
checking it out and learning stuff and digging deeper into whatever it is that we talk about on every episode. Social media, the usual suspects, Hey Human Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. You can find me on Twitter and regular Facebook and Instagram under Susan Ruthism. Uh, I have my music website, susanruth.com, and of course, heyhumanpodcast.com. And you can email me, susan at heyhumanpodcast.com, and i love to hear from you, so please uh, feel inclined to do so. Say hello. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you like, what you don't like, and uh, I read everything, so definitely do that. Gosh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that I might be not remembering uh, just got back from New York. Oh, yep. Just got back from New York. That was great. Uh, had a wonderful musical show there. Saw friends and had a, uh, just a big time. I walked everywhere. It was so much fun. Uh, I'm going to be coming to Seattle. Something to give a shout out about. I'll be playing m- music, my songs, at the Triple Door in Seattle, which that venue is gorgeous. I love playing there. And the show is on August 6th, and doors are at 6 p.m. The show is at 7.30. The food is sensational, and I am so very excited to do this show. Tickets are available, tickets.thetripledoor.net. And you can also find the ticket link at susanruth.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you for making the last two years incredible. And uh, I'm excited about the next years to come. Let's get to it. Here we go. Welcome, Greg Rude. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for being had. (laughs) I think I say that that joke every single time. (laughs) So I'm sure it's getting old for everyone listening. (laughs) Um, So we met in the Nashville Podcasters Association. I don't know what to call it. The group. The group. Let's call it a group. Yeah. Yeah. A, uh, a help self-help group <laughs> for aspiring song, songwriters. See, now I don't even know where I am anymore. For aspiring podcasters. Um, and you are a podcaster. Yeah. You have? I have two shows. I do uh, an improv comedy show called Hypothetically Speaking, as well as like a, just a general pop culture show called Three Dicks Picks, where we talk about uh, movies, music, and more. I love it. Yeah. And no one's named Dick on the show, or no, nope. just three three dudes. And each week we just we each take a turn uh, picking the movie or the album or something random. Yeah, that's cool. Uh, yeah, so we each change like one week. I'll pick the movie, the next the, the music, and yeah. yeah and I'm fun. excited to be on your show. Yeah, that's uh, gonna be a lot of fun. Yeah. The uh, the improv comedy one can go some strange places. I'm so excited <laughs> for that, and I'll let everybody know when I'm gonna be on that. But yes. Yeah. Uh, it's. <clears throat> it's a lot of fun. I do that with actually uh, from New York and Nashville. Yeah. So I have a buddy here in Nashville and then two of my college buddies that are in Rochester, New York, and we do it over Skype. And it's a, at the very least, it's an awesome way to keep in touch yeah. with, with friends. And it's just fun. I'm excited for it because I just, my um, my brother Jeremy is super duper into improv. And mm. for my birthday this past year, he got me a weekend uh, improv classes with David Rosowski. Oh, cool. Who's super great. And I had a blast, and my brother and I did it together, which was really lovely. 
and uh, actually I'm going to Seattle uh, in August. I have a show at the Triple Door on the 6th, for everyone listening, <laughs> and, uh, but I'll be taking a week of improv classes. David's coming back. That's and awesome. So I'm gonna do that. I'd never done it before, and I loved it. I had always, I've always thought about taking improv classes. I'm really just like an improv behind the scenes nerd. Like I, all the podcasts I listen to are improv comedy podcasts, yeah. and like I've just like been studying it from the shadows, and yeah. this is like the first time we've actually tried to do it and like utilize the craft, which is su- such a unique section of comedy that. I have just fallen in love with because I think there's a lot of musicality to improv, I which agree. as a musician is probably why you f- you find it interesting as well. I think that's why maybe it, I was nervous to do it, but I think that's why I at once I just sort of threw myself into it. It was yeah. okay because I've been on the stage so much. Sure. And this is improv in its yeah. own way, of course. And um, yeah, David has a podcast too. David Rosowski does. It's great. What's it called? Uh, I think my phone's in the other room, but if Okay, I looked it up. It's ADD Comedy with Dave Rosowski. I'll tell you afterwards. Yeah, definitely. And then I'll make sure that I tell them now that I've said it. <laughs> and then I'll act like I knew it instantly and David won't be mad at me. <laughs> the, the Comedy Bang Bang is really the cornerstone that I go to. The Is that here? No, that's uh, with Scott Ackerman from oh, you uh, mean on the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is, that's just the cornerstone for me. That's re- really what, like, got me interested in it and uh-huh. I the TV show the the podcast at all I love it all yeah it's funny because I um I, I think I assumed going into the class that it was going to be all about humor and what I loved about David is that he says no who says it has to be funny yeah who says it has to be yes and who says it has to be I mean it's improv and and that means you are just making it up as you go on. You don't you don't sure. have to say, hey, everyone shout out six words and we're going to do that. Or mm-hmm. You don't have to have a backstory. You can figure it out as the audience figures it yeah. out, which was nerve-wracking, but also super exciting. And you kind of find your own voice like you do in music, too, where mm-hmm. you realize the way you like to play with it uh, versus what someone else might do. Yeah. Yeah, I I, it, it, I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, but here you are mm-hmm. uh, in my, uh, this is now the second, <laughs> tri- I, I was saying before that uh, on one of these episodes that first it was the kitchen and now it's the orange room and uh, slowly but surely I'm getting downstairs put together and then it'll be in there. Well, this It's all a process. Oh, the amounts of times that we've, the places we've recorded or the amount of changes we've made, it's, it's always, yeah. it's never good enough. You always want to make it better. I mean, if you're not on The Nerdist or NPR or any of that stuff and you've got, you know, 80 producers and writers mm. and all that stuff doing everything for you, it is very grassrootsy. And, yeah, definitely. And what I think is cool about that, though, is the audience is, is learning and it's only learning with you, you know, as, yeah. as you develop and grow and all that. So that's pretty they, cool. It's almost like your audience becomes proud, like, oh, look at them. They yeah. got to that. Well, I mean, it is a family and it is communion, so that it all It's all intimate. Makes that's sense. that's yeah. the appeal of podcasting yeah. is how intimate it is. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm um, excited. Yeah. You have an interesting story and uh, um, I'm not going to give anything away. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to sort of start it off, though. Uh, do you come from a big family, a little family? Big family. As in? Uh, so, 
like, a, basically, so I'm from Rochester, New York. Rochester. I always want to say that. Episode. I don't know why. I don't know what that comes from. Yeah. There must be a movie or something where someone goes, Rochester, Rochester. Yeah, I probably, and I mean, I get made fun of for my accent from there when I never even thought I had one. I don't think you have an accent. It's the A's. I always get told the A's, like, uh, whenever I say the word, like, calendar, I'm always, and only since moving to Nashville have I been made Fully aware. Did you just say ca- cal- cal- calendar is how I say calendar. Ca- yeah, exactly. That's not the calendar you eat your kale by. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Every third Thursday, <laughs> it's kale. So it's my calendar. <laughs> um, yeah, and my I come from like a traditional Irish Catholic family. Uh, I'm one of only a few members of both my you know from my dad's side or my mom's side that have actually left Rochester. So it's like super loving traditional family value like big family values type of family that I come from and yeah uh, I loved it it was such a great way to be raised and something like that I was very lucky where are you in the birth order youngest what yeah well so I have two younger cousins but other than that everyone's older than me and how many siblings I have two older brothers one's seven years older than me another one's 11 years older than me so you've quite a an age difference too. Okay, so it's not like a, a crazy amount of kids in the family. No, but like my my mom has uh, three siblings, uh, my dad has a few siblings, and they all have kids, and all their kids are having kids, and everyone's in Rochester. Did you all raise up together then? Uh, you know, my older brothers and cousins, they did. I was, because of the age difference, it was a little bit of a gap. I really, like when I was in high school, that's when I started spending a lot of time with my older cousins, because uh. they were like the cool older cousins who were finally letting me hang out. Uh, but uh, I found myself mainly surrounding myself with lots of friends because I didn't have, even though I had a huge family, there wasn't a lot of people my age in my family. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Um, did you excel in school? I did. Uh, I, uh, in high school, for sure, I um, had salutatory honors. You know, I, I started college a year ahead. Oh. Uh, things didn't go as well in college as will happen when you have things happening in your life and you're figuring out who you are for the first time. Uh, that was just like the biggest thing is like figuring out what I want to do versus what I've been brought up to think I wanted to do and a whole bunch of stuff like that. But uh, I enjoyed school for the most part, uh, mainly for the social aspect. I'm a social person. I like hanging out with people. So that was really the draw there, I think. I wonder if that's why Europe encourages the gap year. Between, What's that? What's the gap? The gap year, year happens after uh, kids get out of their their first twelve years of school, and then they take the gap year to go travel or just sort of discover who they are, and then go to university. That's so awesome. It seems logical. Yeah. But here, of course, we go from one to the next to the next. To you're the... you're just too. I I mean, some people are able to figure it out, but I feel yeah, like eighteen course. is just too young to know what you want to do or and. To make the financial commitment that college and university is, to make that at that young of an age is crazy to me. Right. Well, in Europe, of course, college is free. Lucky, yeah. lucky. <laughs> lucky, yeah. I went to a, a state school in New York, mm-hmm. so it wasn't crazy expensive, but I mean, yeah. when you Same. have nothing. I mean, I went to a state school. Yeah. So. I loved it, though. I had a I blast. I loved college. Yeah. yeah I, I had really a blast. Did. I hated 
with every ounce of my being high school and junior high but really oh yeah and to be honest even elementary school wasn't my favorite but I loved college I never hated school like that was never because I was so, I'm also a musician so like being in band like I was in jazz band like every band that I could be a part of I was a part of I yeah. played football so uh, I think those were the reasons why I didn't hate going to school so much because I had so much fun yeah. when I was doing those things I wish I had I wish I had uh, I, I guess the best way to put it is felt good enough about myself to have explored all those things but mm-hmm. I just I wasn't that kid I was awkward and shy and didn't really understand kids. I liked adults, and you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it would have made a difference had I been into sports or music or what. I mean, I always loved music, sure. always, but not, I didn't know that I could Yeah. necessarily, I don't know, you know what I mean? I, I, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. the, the best friends I have to this day from that part of my life were friends that I made, like, through music. Yeah. So that was the big reason why I think I liked I didn't dread going to school back then. I'm envious of people that have friends that they've had since elementary or, you know, first grade or kindergarten. And there are out there, you know, where they have these lifelong friends. I think, my gosh, that's so cool and bizarre (laughs) where they're more like your family, you know? Yeah, I feel like the furthest friend goes back for me is probably sixth grade. Mm. Uh, But even that's a long time. It's a very long time. Yeah, so cool. Um, are you super close with your parents then? Yeah, yeah. More mom or dad or both equally? E- you know, equally, I think. You know, there's the certain things you take to dad and certain things you take to mom. But, uh, you know, they they have been dying to come visit Nashville recently. And, uh, yeah, I stay close to them. That's the one thing. Like, and they will... They have. They won't let me not stay close. <laughs> like they, th- my mom lives for family. Like some people want to be an actor, or be a musician, and she just wanted to be a mother and have a family. So that's what she. That's what she devoted her life to, and that's what she enjoys. Yeah. So she, no career for her other than motherhood, which is she, a hell of a career, of course. I mean, her career was kind of motherhood. She was a kindergarten teacher in the city oh, of Rochester. Cool. And uh, nice. so that's just an extension of that. Mothering. Exactly. Aww. Yeah. Well, thank her for her service. Right. Because I think that's an extremely important job. Oof, and tough. Yeah. I used to, I used to go in and like uh, help her with, because my school would either have a day off when she didn't or something like that, and I'd go in and help with her class and, man, that is <laughs> yeah. wild. That yeah. rough. You see some rough stuff too. Like obviously it's the joys and chaotic that comes with little kids, but. And there, you also see some rough situations that you have to... Like family dynamic. Yeah, like and having to call Child Protective Services and yeah. just... It's, yeah. you, it's a special kind of person to be able to handle something like that. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, did she handle stress well? Yeah, I, you know, the fact that I never really saw it get to her, I, I would say so. You know, I was aware of some of the hard things she had to she had seen and she'd like use those as teaching experiences for me like telling me this is you know you're lucky some people aren't as lucky this is what they've had to deal with and uh you know i know it got to her but she never really let it show did you believe her when she'd tell you stuff like that i mean 
eventually you could not you could not believe her like it's there the stories were too many yeah. and you were when you go in you'd see it yeah and my cousin she also became a, a teacher in the city so like the two of them they you know they were very empathetic towards each other because they were seeing the same things and uh, it's like I said special kind of person it's it's a tough job and they're doing uh, doing the the work that is actually I feel like important sometimes in entertainment you feel like what you're doing isn't essential mm-hmm. and that what they are doing and did do is like undoubtedly essential yeah so that's cool uh, take us to the moment you found out your mom was sick yeah so I was in college um, I don't remember specifically the conversation when I was told that she had um, she was diagnosed with cirrhosis, which is a liver disease. Was and she a drinker? Not at all. Okay. Like, not at all. Never in her life either. Like, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where they, even the doctors, outside of like a genetic predisposition, never really came up with a good reason. Mm-hmm. Just like a genetic bunch of little... hiccups. Yeah, just something, a lot of little things along the way. And it, it's just one of those things. Um, which is also, you know, it's weird because you hear cirrhosis, you immediately think drinking. Like, there's no other way of getting it, but... Well, I'm sure there are. I just, yeah. you know, I wondered because... Sure. A no. stressful job, you know, all these other yeah. factors and... <laughs> it was... I remember one time we were camping and you could tell my mom had been stressed out because she had one beer. Like, that's how <laughs> little of a drinker she yeah. was. She never drank. Um, and so is cirrhosis a cancer or is it different? It's not cancer. It's different. It's, uh... I... Honestly, don't know enough about the. All I know is that it, it shuts down the liver. Yeah. It literally. It, it necrotizes it. It just mm-hmm. starts to die, right? Yep. Yeah. And, it, and the liver just doesn't function the way it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. And obvious, and all of the problems that causes for the rest of your body. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty, you know, it's a pretty serious thing, and uh, they, they, tr- they did their best at uh, keeping it uh, in check for a while. Uh, there's the this number. I can never remember what it was, but there's this number, and we're always wondering what's that number because the number, uh, if it's too high, like she's getting to a severity of uh, like she's too sick and like things are getting bad. But if the number's low, like she's doing good, so that was like the check. What's the number this week, this month? How you feeling? Uh, oh, my number's good, you know. There was always that kind of thing. So if you were in college, there or you were in college when you're. When your parents sat you down and said, this is going on, mm-hmm. how did you how did you respond? Because, you know, our parents are supposed to be these immortal beings. Right. And, and it isn't really until we are in, uh, you know, much later in life that we start to realize, oh, wait, people are starting to die. Right. Um, it was... It was weird. You know, my dad had actually... This wasn't like the first time my parents had been sick. So it wasn't one. It wasn't like that kind of thing where like this is the first time I'm realizing the mortality of my parents. Like my dad is a, a survivor of prostate cancer. Uh, he had also been in a motorcycle, a bad motorcycle accident, and come out of that. Man. So like we were kind of we were growing the callus towards this kind of thing. Like we were in finding our ways of dealing with it, or it just it wasn't. This this was not the first time I'm like holy crap like my. My parents are sick. Like we had been through that initial realization of the mortality, and this was just this is the next one, and 
the coming to realize that this is probably the most serious one. Mm. Uh, and it obviously got to that point for sure. What is the survival rate of cir- cirrhosis of the liver if if untre- if untreatable or you know if it's just sort of yeah I it, you know it, I wish I had the actual number but I know that once it gets to a certain point it's low like they're you need your liver <laughs> exactly right it's and the it's the, the the vacuum of the body right it sucks out all the bad things yep everything gets filtered through the liver yeah. everything uh, all the everything that you put in that gets in the bloodstream goes right through the liver so my best friend ellen who loves to vacuum will now have to <laughs> decide that the liver is her favorite <laughs> that and she her her wine consumption <laughs> <laughs> well, just kidding Elle. <laughs> <laughs> so uh it's crazy because you know, the liver is actually, it grows back. It's one of the organs that the... the Doesn't everything the, grow back except the brain? I thought all of our mm-mm. cells rejuvenate. No, like you, can, like you can't... Or both rejuvenate. Like as far as like a kidney, you can live with one, not both. Ah, but like it you can... It won't itself. Exactly. But like the, the liver, liver, you can chop off a certain portion of it and then that portion will grow back, which is really cool. And weird. Yeah. And Super weird. when you're that sick and you're at the point where... You would need an organ donor. Was did she? So she got to that point. Yeah. So. How long did it take, from diagnosis? Years. Oh. Um, Was she on dialysis and stuff? No, uh, because that so dialysis is for the kidneys. Kidneys. But she she did, so, you know she, um, they were keeping tabs on it, trying to keep it under control for a while. And then she the got... The liver makes you... T- I'm sorry to keep it no, around. Is fine. the liver the one that will make you turn yellow if it's... Th- that's kidneys. That's kidneys Because that's jaundice. Too. Jaundice. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm getting my organs right. <laughs> I'm just getting them all straight in my brain pan. Okay. Um, But it it got to a point where she actually uh, fell into a coma. She got... She started... Um, there was an infection in fluids that were surrounding the liver. Mm. And it made her very sick. And the doctors were having a hard time getting that under control. And it got to a point where she was in a coma for three months, uh, I think even a little longer. In the hospital? Mm-hmm. Holy crap. Yeah, and like the the weeks leading up to that were obviously not fun. Or like it was one of the hardest times were you in college at this time? So did you mm-hmm. have to bail on college because I was able to take some time to come home, uh, specifically for this portion of things, and it was rough. What was going through your heart and mind at that point? Did you did you think that was it? You, you well, I don't know. I don't think I thought that was it because I'm I'm kind of an optimistic person. I can be delusional and like just tell myself that's not gonna happen. Uh, I guess the hardest part was knowing them. So my mom, like I said, I come from a, an Irish Catholic family. My mom's a, a devout uh, Catholic and I am not. And this was one of those things <clears throat> that I kept thinking about. I was like, my mom has been like one the just the ideal best person. Like she taught kids. She loved her family. She, she was, she didn't drink. She, you know, it's just a good person where something terrible happened for no reason. And I feel like that was the hardest part is <laughs> like the entire family being there for my mom and her whole entire life. She was there for her family and just it, it, it would almost make it easier if like she was a drinker because at, at least there's a reason. 
But yeah. the fact that there was no good reason and it was just happening to a good person. Did you have, uh, you, you, you mentioned just now, you said, you know, she's a devout Catholic. I am not. Mm-hmm. What does that mean exactly? Uh, so um, I'm not, I'm, I guess you would say atheist. Okay. I don't like that label necessarily because I think it has a lot of negative connotations with it. But I, I you know, I, I don't, I'm not a believer uh, in fact, I feel like this situation was one of the, I, I held out hope for a long time. I grew up, you know, I was um, you know, first communion, I was confirmed, all that stuff. And I think this situation was one of those things that like severed those last ties of hoping that there was some, because so, it just didn't make sense. Like, how could there be a benevolent God when something like this was happening to such a genuinely good person? Mm-hmm. Uh, but th- suffice it to say that, that what she woke up from this coma when no one thought she was going to like the doctors. I remember, um, this, I do remember the exact moment I was, I had gone back to school, uh, cause obviously I couldn't take months off. So I'd gone back to school and they, the doctors were having a meeting with my family and, uh, like to update them on the status of how my mom was doing. And uh, my buddy and I were leaving the house. We were going to go get some subs, you know, just a normal day. And then my phone rings. It's my dad. And I knew that this meeting was going, so I answered the call. And that was the moment my dad was like, your mom's not going to wake up. And that was just obviously awful. Like, I remember we, <clears throat> I got that phone call and we're driving to the sub shop. And we get to a red light and I just got out of the car. Like, we were miles from home. I just, you know, and because I wasn't even home, like, with family to deal with that. It was rough um, to be told for her to not technically have passed, but being told that she might as well have was, you know, obviously crazy. Yeah. yeah. But she woke up, you know, and what they would say is an act of God, you know. and So how did... By calling it that, where did that place you with your... I know, right? It's, it's a juxtaposition of, yeah, I mean, of where you were. <laughs> I feel like it would do the doctors a disservice to credit that to God, because the doctors were just incredible. Um, but it is, like, I will say it's one of those things, just as, like, it's unexplained on how she came down with it, it's also unexplained how she woke up. Yeah. Does uh, she remember being in a coma? Does she have any... Any recollection or reflection on that? I mean, I feel like I, if being honest, like it's such, it was such a rough time that it was, it, I feel like not, no one in my family has really talked about that in length in like a, in a healing way is like, we all went through something. We should talk about it. Well, that, that never really happened. Why do you think that is? Because, I mean, I know that families don't talk about stuff. That's historically to be true in every family. But why do you think for your family that didn't happen? I think because my family's probably like me, and that's how I deal, cope with that sort of stuff. Like, I would see it as, that's just, like, why bring it up? You know, it's it's a painful conversation to have, a tough conversation to have. And with all the pain that you had just experienced dealing with that, why relive it? Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's probably why... I also think it's something that'll probably happen with time because uh, it's been five years now, I think, five or six years. That's extraordinary. So it's been a while, but it's, uh, I still think it takes time to even have that conversation. Like I, I bet in like 10 years, 
you know, you could probably we'll probably have that conversation. It'll be easier than having it so close to the actual event. Yeah. I'm curious when you got the phone call from your father that mm-hmm. said your mom might as well be gone. Right. I assume they started talking about what to what to do next. Do they unplug her? Do they do exactly. this? So as a family, how do you deal with that? And then clearly that didn't happen. So yeah. then, then what? You're like, yeah, pull the plug or no, don't pull the plug. And then a miracle happens. Yeah, it, it was real. That's where the conversation ended. It was like, this is how they tell us. This is the, the situation, right? And uh, we have to decide what to do from here. And I, being away at school, I was sheltered from a lot of those situations, those decisions. I wasn't really involved in any of that. So Does I don't know how... Or was that okay? It doesn't bother me. I mean, I don't... I... It saved me from certain pains. And I know, like, my family was wanting me to focus on school at the time and um, only queuing me in when it was really important. And your eldest sibling, I suppose, mm-hmm. was probably pretty present. Yeah, they were both. My, my Both of my older brothers were there. Uh, for mo- My oldest brother was there the entire time. Yeah. He lives in Rochester. Okay. So he was there the entire time. My other brother, I believe he was living in New York at the time, New York City. Uh, but he was coming back, spending more time than I was at home, too. Mm-hmm. So they were there. Uh, more cued in on that sort of thing. So how did that go down? That conversation to have about your mom's well-being and right to life or death or all that stuff? You know, I really don't know if it ever happened to the point of they made a decision whether they were going to pull or not because she woke up. I think they, you know, I can't, I can't imagine making that call to do that sort of thing. So I imagine they were just not making the call yet. How soon between the first call you got mm-hmm. when they said, no, it's not going to happen, and she woke up? How long of a time period was that? Th- under two weeks. It oh, was wow. soon. Yeah, real soon. Like, to the point where it was it was like whiplash. Like, very jarring. And it did, it was, it was, did not take that much time, which is why the, I don't think they ever got to that point where they had officially decided, mm. this is what we're going to do. Because I got that call, and within, I think, 10 days, I got another call saying she's awake. And obviously, all the joy that that comes with, it was like, it was crazy. Man. <clears throat> and um, so, she got better for a while. Um, not great, you know, but obviously way better than what she was. Still in the hospital, or did she She stayed. She was in the hospital for a long time. Uh, How did she, you afford, how did your family pay for all that? Uh, being, my dad worked for Kodak and my mom be, being a teacher, they have great insurance that to say it was crazy expenses, I'm, I'm sure still, but they had, you know, it's all insurance. They had great insurance for that sort of thing. Luck, lucky enough. You okay. Know. And they didn't cap it out or anything after all that? Cause I have friends for example mm-hmm. that have uh, gone through cancer and ended up homeless. Right. While still trying to treat it because their insurance money ran out. So I was just didn't know. Uh, three months seems like a really long time to oh, be yeah. in the hospital. Yeah. I mean, my family is in a in a pretty lucky situation to have been able to deal with that. Yeah. Uh, the way they were able to um, just, you know, with p- 
people we knew in hospitals and and the fact that my parents did have the insurance coverage yeah. they did and that we had people in the family helping us through it making sure we were making the right decisions yeah. um, as far as doctors and procedures and stuff like that go. how was your dad through all of this oh my dad was a rock he literally stayed every night i think in those three months there might have been seven total nights that he didn't stay in the hospital, mm. which is just insane. And he was never broken. He was strong. And um, I assume he has a, a faith in, or has that tested him as well? No, he, he believes. Yeah. Definitely. Um, I'm sure it helped him. He's not as outward about it as my mom is. He's more of a... a private guy when it comes to that sort of thing but you know he's not shy of being you know he goes to church every day singing loud with everyone okay every Um, day every week every sunday (laughs) not every day every sunday um so i'm sure that that helped him through it but Mm. like the the i don't know that he was just such a rock through the whole thing never made i was never worried for him he always was like putting me and my brothers at ease it just I don't know. I can't imagine. He sounds like a remarkable person. Yeah, it was, it was definitely one of those like that's a father, you know. Yeah. It's one of those times. Beautiful. Yeah. I love that. So, mom wakes up, and y'all have to decide what to do next. Is she mm-hmm. still not getting better? Getting better, but relatively so. You know, like she's not. You know, as, as sick as she was, but she's 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 getting better. She's getting worse. She's getting better. She's getting worse. So with the cirrhosis, as we, as we talked about a second ago, mm-hmm. when you do a dissection on a liver, it'll grow back. Yeah. So with cirrhosis, that doesn't happen, or cirrhosis is just like the it's tainting the entire liver. So no matter where you yeah, cut it's, it's not like out, you can't yeah, you can't like cut out the cirrhosis. It's the entire liver okay. is infected by it. Okay. Um, and she, I think about a year later, maybe a little less than a year later, she got sick again, like really bad again. Not, she didn't fall, she wasn't in a coma this time. And this time I was way, I was sheltered from way more of the details the second time around. Why? Uh, you know, I, I, you know, honestly, I didn't handle this whole situation well. So I think my family was doing that for my benefit and I also wasn't seeking that information because I was away at school it was way easier for me than the rest of my family to kind of forget about it and or try to forget about it um put in the back of my head you know I had such great friends around me that were distracting me from that Uh, it's interesting to me that you say um that you weren't that you didn't handle it well mm -hmm. I think when it comes to pain and suffering and emotion it, it makes people in general super uncomfortable, right? Yeah. And in my family, for example, I'm the emotional one. And my dad's always saying to me, oh, you get so emotional. You know, try not to get so emotional. Try not to be so empathic. Try not, you know. Right. And I know he does that out of worry. And I try and say, guess what? I get to have any feeling I want to. Mm-hmm. So... I, I do think that happens a lot in families yeah. where the person, and in, in, in a way, if there's already stoicism happening, like your dad's being a rock, your brother's being rocks, even your mom and her yeah. own way being a rock, and and you're the conduit for all the emotion. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's like you're a lightning rod for sure. everything that everyone else isn't doing. And I mean, no, that's that actually like, makes I'm a, a lot of sense. I'm the youngest child. 
and and maybe that's the youngest child thing that we absorb the family everything yeah because <laughs> spit it back out because <laughs> really no you know obviously it it was heavy on everyone but my entire family was remarkably strong through it all but not you yeah, I mean, I wouldn't been either. I yeah. mean, I get it. I totally not to. It's not to say people who are stoic also aren't entitled to their stoicism. Mm-hmm. I just, just, I think because I see myself in you that I that I say that. Right. But maybe it is because we actually we become the thing that they can't be. Yeah, you know that I've never thought of it that way, but that makes sense. And uh, uh, the other thing I mean by I didn't handle it well is like I wasn't. Being, I, you know, how my, my dad was there for my brothers. Like, I don't feel like at any point I was doing any good for any. I wasn't setting anyone else at ease. Mm-hmm. I don't like thinking back on it. I clearly didn't handle that portion well. I mean, as well as you can. It's such a, it's there's not no something rule. you can prepare for. No, you there's, know? there's no rule book yeah. for that. Um, so she did she get out of the hospital between the two? She did. Uh, she did get between the coma and the second time she got real bad she was able to come home um you know at that point I was in at school so that whole time I don't have tons of details on how you know how better she got uh, all I know is that <clears throat> it eventually got to the point where the doc like she was back in the hospital which she was in and out all the time but now she was back in the hospital real sick again same sort of conversation with the doctors in my family where they're like, this is bad, probably as bad, if not worse than the first time. And we don't know if she's going to make a recovery. So now I'm having this conversation for a second time. Mm. And uh, like I said, this time, that, that whole second part, way sheltered from. And uh, for better or for worse, you know. But my mom got better again. Like, she's a fighter and she... But the, so she got better again. But the crazy thing, and we realized that you know she needs a new liver. This and how old liver, is she at this point? At the at, so she's she's late fifties, early sixties at this point. Okay. Um, and we just we knew at that so she recovered from this thing that she wasn't supposed to again, uh, which is you know miraculous and. But and so we realized that she just needs a new liver. There there had been that conversation throughout this whole time about the possibility of getting a new liver from a cadaver. Uh, but it's weird. There you have to be sick enough to qualify and to move up the list. So they have like the this list of people that need livers, right? And you have to be sick enough to move up the list to get a to get a liver, but not too sick where your body couldn't handle. The operation. The operation. And that's such a thin margin to be in where she was either healthy enough where she was way down the list and was never going to get a cadaver donor or she was too sick and couldn't take one because her body wouldn't have been able to do the operation. And that's like such a stressful situation. Like get sick, but not too sick. Get healthy, but not too healthy. Because ultimately like the... You know, the carrot at the end of the stick is the the operation, the transplant. That's what you want, but it, it's so And it's you so also crazy. have to know that you're not going to reject whatever you get to. So exactly. there's all that that, to, mm-hmm. that takes place. And there's, the, yeah. So. Trying to find a matching donor and, mm-hmm. yeah. 
And uh, and I, I don't know how long livers survive outside the body, but I assume that they also have to wait for someone to pass away so that they exactly. can harvest the organs and then have all those surgeries. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything is like a such a perfection balance going oh, on. Oh, it's like, and things can change like that. Yeah. Like, all of a sudden, now there's a liver available, now it's gone. You know, it's, it's so crazy. Yeah. The list of people who need organ transplants is so long, and I think everyone should be an organ donor, like... I just, what are you going to do with your body when you're gone? Like help someone else, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's just, it's so crazy that you have to ride that such a thin line of not too sick, not too healthy. So we, you know, we came to the realization that she needed a live donor. She needed, if she was going to get a new liver, it wasn't going to be from a cadaver. It was going to be from a person. Meaning that you weren't going to have to wait on the list. Yeah. For her to get it. Exactly. We. You had to find somebody to somewhere. donate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, which is also crazy. Uh, and my <clears throat> my entire family, everyone offered, everyone, my my dad, my brothers, my cousins, my uncles, my aunt, uh, anyone who was healthy enough offered. Uh, but my brothers and I kind of talked about it and were like, you know, it's we want to be the ones to do it and. My oldest brother had some pre-existing medical conditions that took him out. He couldn't do it. Um, my middle brother, he's a healthy dude. And he he was started right away with the process. Uh, Which and, is what does that mean? Oh, it's oof, so long. Being so, you have to you know you ha- you first of all we had to pick a hospital. Because we're from Rochester, New York, and they have Strong Memorial Hospital, which is where she spent most of her time. And it's a great hospital. Super lucky to have a hospital that nice in Rochester, but a live organ transplant is a very specialized procedure. So you want to go to the best place possible for something like that. So we looked at a bunch of different hospitals, the Mayo Clinic, uh, ultimately deciding on Cleveland Clinic. Uh, Superb track record, you know, top four, top three hospitals in the country and only four hours away. So that's where we decided that we were going to have the operation take place. And you, uh, there's a whole team of doctors for my mom, a whole team of doctors for the donor, for my brother. Uh, you have to, all the tests for like making sure that you're healthy and every, every major, you meet with doctors for every major system in your body. Like you, and all the doctors are different. So you my mom would have 12, say like, I'm not getting like 12 doctors on her team. And my brother would have 12 on his team, completely different doctors. Their team was to be in the best interest of their patient. So my brother's doctors, you know, their their interest wasn't getting my mother uh, a liver. Their interest was making sure that my brother was healthy enough and that it was going to be safe for him to do it. Makes sense. And I'm glad they have those checks and balances. Yeah. That's a good thing. Is it an, uh, an automatic that he would be compatible with her because he's her son or is it still... It's it's way more likely, okay. but it's not 100%. Okay. Uh, so, and it, there's so many things that go into that. You know, you have a liver biopsy. They even, at one point... Uh, they send, there's only, I think, two places in the world that can do it, but they send a, a, an imaging of your o- organ to Germany, and they make an actual 3D physical representation of the organ. That and you Hannibal can Lecter looks at it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he says, I'll eat that. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> like uh, something you can actually hold in your hands. Um, oh, wow. <laughs> they make a model yeah, liver? Yeah, of your liver, and they don't let you keep it, which is stupid. Aww. <laughs> so, I don't want that. 
you know, my brother went through all of that and he was cleared as like a, a suitable donor. The, the surgery was scheduled. Hotels were booked. Uh, my family, my brother and my, my parents were legitimately driving from Rochester to Cleveland a week before the surgery. Like they're getting there early and they get a call from the doctors because the week before the surgery, my brother's team of doctors, they all get together, go over one, everything one last time, make sure everything's good. And in that 3D rendering, they noticed an issue they hadn't seen before because of all the little, there's so many little tubes going in and out of the liver, like so many of them. Okay. And I don't know exactly the details, but they were wrapped around the liver in a way where the procedure was going to be way riskier than they had originally anticipated for my brother. And they didn't realize this until the very last minute. Very last minute. Like they were on their way to Cleveland and they got that call. Wow. So my brother was deemed, you know, uh, it, he still could have done it, but it would have been way riskier. So then I started. I was like, all right, my turn, you know. We had where, been, where is your family and all that? Like, that must have been so traumatic. Yeah, like. Like, you're there, you're getting ready to drive to the thing. It's like running a, a, a <laughs> it's like running the marathon and you're at the finish line and then they're like, nope, just kidding. Another five miles. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was crazy. It was like, yeah. you know, with, with a store, with a, you know, so much pain and things not going right. It seemed like he's suitable donor, surgery, you know, things were looking good. And then just such a blow right mm-hmm. when you think you're there. Mm-hmm. Think You see the light at the end of the tunnel and now you have to start from scratch. Um, and you know, through this whole time, I was kind of preparing myself for that possibility anyway. Were you scared? You know, I, when I say I wasn't, I truly wasn't. And I don't know why. Like, I, I don't think that's bravery necessarily. I just think, <clears throat> like I mentioned, I, I can be pretty delusional. <laughs> you know, I can convince myself of things. And, uh, <clears throat> I just, you know, I never, entertained the idea that anything bad was ever going to happen. Now, how old are you at this point when you're starting, when you say, okay, my, I'm next in queue, here we go. 24. Okay. So yeah. young, strapping. Yeah, I'm 27 now. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, yeah, it was, it, it's so crazy. And I wasn't home. That's the other thing. Like You were in college. I was still in school. So you know, I was, got this news that my brother was no longer going to work out and that I had to start while I was at school, so I didn't even have family around, but I had awesome friends that made it so, they made me feel like a rock star when they found out that that's what I was, that now I had to start doing this. Did you have to change things like your diet? Absolutely. Or, yeah, no drinking, I assume. No, no drinking. Yeah. Um, healthy foods. Healthy foods, exercise, like just living that clean life. Uh, to prepare this. Organ. And you know, it's, and that can be so difficult and like just trying to better yourself for yourself. But when you have that as the reason for it, yeah. it wasn't hard at all. Yeah. It's just, and that is a very big thing that makes those small life changes very inconsequential. Uh, so I, you know, it took a long time. Uh, and that's when I had my experience of my 12 doctors. And I mean, I even had to meet with, an ethicist and the Cleveland clinic has an entire department of just philosophers who are, you know, That'd ma- be the coolest job. Oh, and I was a philosophy major in college. What? 
So when I met with this guy and when I decided to be a philosophy major, you know, I heard all the jokes from my family. What are you going to do? Open up a philosophy store? Yeah. Like, what do you do with a philosophy degree? I just enjoyed it. So that's why I wanted to major in it. So when I saw this guy, I was like, this guy, he's working at the Cleveland Clinic. He, he's a philosopher. Like, there's actual, yeah. you know, meaningful positions in that world. But, and also like psychologists to make sure that I wasn't being coerced, that I was doing this because I wanted to do it. Um, Did they ask you ethical questions or was it more yeah, like they, philosophical questions? Um, ethical, uh, entirely. Like they drilled me about whether or not like people were forcing me if I felt like I had to do this. Um, but see, that's a tricky question, isn't it? To feel yeah. like you have to do something, that becomes more philosophical than ethical almost sure. in and of itself. Because I can feel like I have to do it, because it's but I'm not... Yeah. Family, yeah. But, uh, but no one's making me feel that way. I make myself right. feel that way. Right, so those are some thin lines to walk on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, the biopsy was the craziest thing. Did it hurt? It, it feels like pressure. Like when you, uh, you know, when you get something done on your teeth yeah. where you don't feel the pain of it, but you feel the pressure of it. Mm-hmm. They literally, they stab you and you're, you're awake for it. Mm-hmm. They, I remember the, the doctor was like playing cheesy music trying to like make it lighthearted and it was just a strange atmosphere but they'll they give you the pain meds they numb the area and then they just take a giant needle and they stab you with it and you watch them do it and they just take little cells of the liver to to test to make sure that the liver's healthy that you're a match all that kind of stuff um i can't tell you how many vials of blood that was taken uh, like i said i met with a doctor that specializes in every major system of the body uh and <clears throat> that's one of the cool things is like i got the biggest medical workup of my entire life yeah here's that like, ladies <laughs> 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 uh and uh, it took a while but i was eventually deemed a suitable donor mm-hmm. how long is a while i want to say it was between two and three months and all the while you're hoping that God, mom doesn't die exactly. while you're going through all this. Yeah, and and lucky enough, during this portion, she wasn't in her worst state. Like she was, you know, she was doing relatively well. So although we wanted, like we knew this had to happen, it wasn't like we we, you know, it's not like we we're like we only have six months. You know, there was nothing. There's no timetable like that. It was just like we need this to happen, and we need it to happen now so that what has happened twice already doesn't happen a third time because you never know when that can happen. So that was kind of the clock. There wasn't like, you only have so much time left. It's if this thing could happen a third time. And if it happens, you know, every time it happens that the likelihood of coming back is significantly lower every time. Sure. Uh, but between my family and friends, like it, it really was not as hard of a thing to get myself prepared for as you would think. Um, that is to say up until it actually happens. Cause I think you're just like, you can, you can really convince yourself of some things where they, I mean, I sat down with doctors and they told me that I could die. They're like, they, they ran me through all of the, the things that could go wrong and that the percentage of the likelihood of me passing away on the table, like that was, that what, was a thing that could have happened. It was those, low. Okay. It was like, but it was still, still 10% chance is still more than you're dealing with normally. Um, but even all, even through all that, it, it never was as hard as you... And it's weird saying that, but 
I think it's just because I was I was so lucky enough to have family on my side and friends on my side that I I don't know it just it never seemed as crazy as it actually was you know that situation uh, that is until you actually get to the hospital because that's when that's when everything changes um, we August fourth twenty fourteen was the date that was scheduled for the surgery. Uh, we got to Cleveland the, the weekend before the nerves. I remember we, I hate baseball. I'm not a baseball fan at all. We went to a Cleveland Indians baseball game just to like pass the time, do something, get your mind off what's coming that Monday morning. Um, it was, I had family that even came to Cleveland. They were, they got hotel rooms. They stayed through the procedure. Uh, I had to have a caretaker in my, in my hospital room throughout the entire procedure. What do you mean? Um, a family member that, because my dad and my brothers obviously want to split time between me and my mom, mm-hmm. but I needed someone who was going to be devoted to me throughout the nights in the hospital. And my uncle did that for me, which is crazy. So many People of my and my family put like their life on hold for that whole thing, which was you know. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's great. Uh, so he stayed with me the entire time in the hospital. It was uh, six in the morning, Monday morning. You get woken up, put in the hospital bed, and. Do you remember what you were thinking then and that and now? Because here we are, zero dark thirty. Yeah. What. <laughs> Uh, you know, it, a lot of things, like, this is actually happening. Like, it, it almost felt like the entire time leading up to that point that it was never actually going to happen. That, you know, that's this isn't actually happening. I'm not actually going to be put under and sliced open. Like, that's not it. And then... And how much would they have to take in order for this to work? They can take different amounts, but I think they were planning to take about 60% of my liver. Holy moly. Yeah. So that's a big. And then they take out all of hers and replace it with your sixty percent, mm-hmm. and then hope for the best. That's yep. that's the plan. That's the plan. All right, so here you are, wake up <sighs> six a.m. Yeah, and uh, my whole family's there. You know, everyone like no one slept the night before, and that's the the ride from my. So I'm in the VIP 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 area in the Cleveland Clinic, like. Where LeBron James goes when he goes to the hospital, this is where I was. They they treat their donors like kings there. The service at Cleveland Clinic is remarkable. Uh, but the the ride in my my bed from that super nice room that I, it was like two rooms with flat screen TVs and an awesome view of the city, and now I'm being wheeled down to the like the cold basement and the cold operating room, and, and the family's walking with you the whole time and. That was, that felt like forever that it's like you're being wheeled towards what you've been planning, you know, working for this entire time. And it's just, it's a really surreal thing. And then they, so I get all the way to the operating room and then my mom's there. So she's there in her hospital bed. I'm in my hospital bed. You're next to each other. Before we go into our operating room. So we were in separate operating okay, rooms okay. across the hall from each other. Mm-hmm. But before either of us went into our rooms, we were able to see each other. That was the hardest. Holy, it's going to make me cry. How oh, did you even handle that? That was, I, I didn't. 
my mom went in and then uh, my coordinator, because I had a coordinator who, you know, facilitated my communication uh, through all the doctors. <laughs> and uh, she let me compose myself before I went in. And then that's crazy. Huge room, cold, so cold. Did your mom exchange words? Was she conscious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Crying, you know, like I'm doing right now. Um, That's really all it was. Yeah. And then you go in and now all the doctors that you've met individually are now all in the room together. And they're so, they're pros. They, they, They make you laugh, like really set you at ease, doing a really good job at like making sure I don't freak out. Um... Because it was easy to. There's this huge, like, octopus-looking contraption that hangs above me. And uh, just with, like, lights and... I don't know. It was the craziest-looking thing. The room was huge. And there was just medical equipment everywhere. Uh, Obviously, everyone's all scrubbed up. And it was just very intense. But all the doctors were cracking jokes. And it really... Unlike the... uh, the biopsy where it was very strange they it was like a very good mood and a good vibe in that room that really set me at ease it's good there's and, a lot of research to back up why that's important of course oh yeah yeah and uh they put this like crown of sensors on <laughs> me uh cuz they monitor your brain activity to make sure that you you are you have enough drugs to stay under but not too much, and so you don't wake up, you know. So they have, they fit me with this whole crown of sensors that's just going to monitor my brain activity the whole time. And then the anesthesiologist comes over, starts uh, you know, like telling you all the stuff about, you know, what, how much they're giving you, and like that matters to me. I, that's probably just things they have to tell you legally. Uh, but then he starts counting down from 100. <laughs> By 97, I'm out. Mm-hmm. And I was out for 10 hours. That's how long the surgery was? Surgery was 10 hours long. Imagine the surgeons doing that. Oh, they, I mean, they can't go to the bathroom. <laughs> like, they're just in that room the entire time. Unbelievable. And to think of, like, the intricacy, like, the detail, and it's, I can't even begin to imagine how difficult that has to be and how grueling 10 hours without any break with someone's life literally in your hands. like. And then to excise that 60% of liver and deliver it across the hall. Right, exactly. And time that perfectly for your mom to be under and, but not under too long or not long, you know, all that Mm -hmm. stuff. That's just to me insane. And then my entire family having to be out in the waiting room for 10 hours. Yeah. Uh, I know, I don't know, do you know uh, who John Panette is, the comedian? I don't think so. He's a, he's a little bit more old school stand-up comic, but... My uncle was a big fan of his. My uncle stayed with me in the hotel or in the hospital, and I remember my my family telling me that he was just showing everyone comedy, like YouTube videos, trying to keep everyone smart. Uh, and they and the Cleveland Clinic they have like walking tours of modern art and lots of holistic healers out there like giving hand massages and passing out essential oils dogs everywhere yay <laughs> so they do they have a lot of stuff to like keep you occupied and honestly from what i was told they were getting nothing but positive updates from the doctors so even though it was taking a long time 
It's not like... I think that's the kind of thing you want them to take a long time. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> take your time, get that right. Yeah. <laughs> but they weren't, it wasn't like, they weren't getting updates and like, something's wrong, something's right. taking a long time. Sure. Everything was going according to plan. Sure. It was just taking a long time. And I hardly remember anything about that, like, because they, I woke up in post-op, obviously, and I barely remember anything about that day. That's basically all gone because I had just, so they say something like for every hour you're under that the anesthesia stays in your body for a month. So I was under for 10 hours. So I would, I had that in me for 10 months, which, so the immediate wake up, I have a lot of it in me right away. And I was super just out of it. Uh, the, the next day I remember way better because my, I had an issue where, I mean, I, I have the huge scar that starts right below my sternum, goes all the way down to my belly button and then all the way over to the right side of my body. So fresh off of the surgery table, that hurts. That's mm-hmm. tons of staples, so much. And my bed was constantly moving. And my nurse was telling me I was imagining it. And I'm saying, like, the, the bed was moving, like, my left side of my body up and then down, my right side up and down. Like you're on left. a boat? Yeah. Like, like I was almost on a waterbed. Oh. And, but, like, more mechanical. Uh, and it was driving me insane. It hurt, obviously. And it was just, like, not what you want. I want to lay here and not move at all. And my nurse was telling me I was imagining it, that it wasn't happening. So eventually the nurse's assistant came in and I told her about the problem. She came right over and like fixed it in two seconds. It was a setting on the bed that they have for people who can't get out of bed for weeks on end. So they don't get bed sores. Oh my God. So it's like a, it's purposeful thing that was not meant for someone in my that, that nurse didn't. <laughs> oh, that nurse. Uh, I Cleveland clinic was amazing. That, that nurse, nurse was, was not. not. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> The, it happens. The, and the... Nurse Ratchet. Yeah, exactly. That's what we called it the whole time. And it got to the point where um, the next day I was cleared to go back up to my nice room in the VIP wing. Might, might have actually been that very next day. And my mom was in post-op too. And we were where she was going to be after post-op and where I was going to be after post-op are wildly different places. And the Cleveland Clinic campus is gigantic. So it would take like 15 minutes for family members to get from me to my mom. So I knew that that was going to happen. Because you needed different levels of care. Yeah, and like they wanted me in the VIP and she's obviously needs to be monitored way more heavily than I did. And I knew that this was the closest I was going to be. I hadn't seen her since before we went in. I wanted to say something to her before I went upstairs. And the nurse was like, no, can't do it. You're That's too far out of the way. The doctors just want you to go straight to your room. And my dad t- tried talking to her. My brothers tried talking to her. She would just not let it happen. Uh, and then eventually that nurse's assistant comes back in, the one who saved me from the bed. And I told her, and she's like, oh, that's ridiculous. And she was able to schedule it so that I was to be brought up to my room during a shift change so that that head nurse wasn't going to be there. So that the assistant could be the one to take me upstairs and she took me by my mom. Aw, we and love that, the assistant. Yeah, assistant. <laughs> yeah, and that was awesome. Like, 
we I, like I didn't get to be right up next to her, and I obviously didn't get to stay there for too long. But that was like was that, she conscious at that point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a victory moment for sure. I mean, I just I think about just the whole thing of it. That here's this woman who gave birth to her child, and then her it, it chokes me up, and then her child in turn gives birth to her. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, I mean, and at that point, after all the years of like pain and terrible stuff and then the lead up to make sure that this happens and then that moment it had happened and it had happened and it was successful and it was great and even though it was only like a minute it was i was so happy that she let us do that before i went upstairs because then i didn't see my mom again for days um until i was well enough to be how long was that how long were you in recoup so I was I was only in the hospital for a week after, which sounds like a short amount of time considering. But what was weird is the first three days, first four days were awful, so bad. I I I, you know how you have that thing when you're around family, you don't swear. Like it's just one of those things that kind of you don't even think about. I don't it. have that family, but I do okay. understand that. Yeah. <laughs> I have that family. It's one of those things that when I'm around family, and I don't even have to think about censoring myself. It just never comes up. And my uncle tells me like. Uh, that I just dropped a hard F-bomb, like, right in front of my family. They asked me how I was doing, and I was like, not good. <laughs> like, and that, and then they had this tube that was coming right out the side of my body, like, right from the incision, that was supposed to be collecting um, fluid to, like, get out of it, you know, trying to take away from the incision area. And it wasn't working right, and it hurt so bad. And... Uh, I, they also gave me Dilaudid, which is like a crazy strong pain med, and I had a reaction to that, and I started breaking out into hives. Oh, no. So then they had to give me Benadryl through my central line right in the neck, which I take children's Benadryl, and I'm out for eight hours. So that was wild. <laughs> like, I was having such crazy vivid dreams. I, I remember bet. One time I was, I was laying in the hospital bed, and I was like, I am so thirsty. I need some water. And they don't, I can't drink water. They just have like those sponges that you can like dip in water to wet your mouth. And I, I was like, I want to do that so bad. My eyes weren't open. I was like, did I just do, did I just grab water? I, I think I'm still thirsty. And then I realized, nope, I hadn't. I just you been like, yeah, it was, it was wild. And then they had to like take me back down to take x-rays because things weren't going accordingly. And that I had to like stand up and stand still and it was just I had probably like 75 staples across my chest and it hurts so bad those first three days were the worst days of my entire life as far as like per like physical pain but would you do it all over again a hundred percent and the crazy thing is that they told me like the nurses kept telling me you're gonna feel better just give it time and then like I think it was the Thursday morning I woke up felt a hundred times better. Wednesday, I felt like I was dying. And then Thursday, I felt fine. Like, not fine, but better. so much yeah. better. And then by Saturday, I was out into the into the hotel. Now, how long does it take a person who's healthy, like <clears throat> you, to rejuvenate that missing 60%? They, they actually don't have... like Because I looked into that. <clears throat> and there's no set time. They really just monitor it. Um, it took, it's less than a year. Uh, some mar- remarkably fast. Right around when the anesthesia wears off. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, 
but yeah, it, it's completely full size now. Um, is that not so insane? It's awesome. It's and but the thing is, you can only do it once. I guess I'm sure you could maybe do it twice, but it's like super risky. So even though it's just like a one and done thing, like I could never donate my liver again. So where is your mom in all this? Where is she now? How is she doing? She's doing great. Uh, you know, so, so it worked. Oh, it worked. It, they said it like was a perfect match. They couldn't have asked for better situation for it. Uh, I had to. So I also needed. So I went to a hospital I, or hotel. I had to stay in Cleveland for a total of I think three weeks. Uh, and when I was at the hotel, I needed caretakers too. So my parents' best friends, uh, who I call aunt and uncle, because they're family, uh, they stayed with me in the ho- in the hotel for a week. So they also put their life on hold uh, to take care of me for that time. I think it was like ten days or something like that in the in the hotel before I could go back to Rochester. My mom, on the other hand, stayed for over a month in the hospital. Yeah. In in well, she was weeks in the hospital, maybe. Maybe not even more than two, but I had to stay in the hotel and in Cleveland for over a month because she had to go back to the hospital all to, you know, tests and all that sort of stuff. But she, uh, you know, is doing great. That that number I talked about before is the best the number could be. Like that whole, it was just, it, it couldn't have, it was a story with a happy ending, um, and now she is home, you're retired, my dad's retired. Uh, you know, there, there's been other, you know, medical issues that come with getting older, but that portion was just so rough and it was over. Like, wow. yeah. It was, and I recovered pretty well and I have a giant badass scar, but I, I love it. <laughs> it's kind of like a, a badge of honor. Um, her scar is even bigger, uh, but yeah, I mean the the Cleveland Clinic like gave me my mom back. It was great. The that the, as did you? Sure, yeah, as but I mean because of them, the the care of that hospital that hospital is something else. They're doing great stuff there. It was really cool. That's wonderful. Yeah, and uh, so I am. I actually something I find very therapeutic is writing. I'm not a writer, but I when I'm like confused about things or like something's bothering me I like to write about it because I feel like it organizes my thoughts Mm -hmm. and I had done that about the operation because it was you know obviously a very great thing something I'll obviously never regret doing but it's also like the greatest thing I'll ever do you know my entire life uh which is fine but it's also that was something I didn't expect like that you know that it's weird at 24, like I know that like 85 years old when I'm on my deathbed, that will be my life defining moment. I feel like I don't think I could ever do anything for the rest of my life nearly as important. Although I will challenge that and say by having this conversation with me and the what 50, 60,000 people that are going to listen to it, mm-hmm. that some of them may in turn do the same to make the decision to save someone else's life. Yeah. And so guess what? It it isn't the only thing you've done. You will continue your legacy is exponential. Sure. That's a, that's a much better way of thinking about it than the way I thought about it. Uh but you know, I've I've been able to take 
that which seemed like I was living in the shadow, like 24 years old. I'm, you know, six, best thing I'll ever do. I'm, and so, <clears throat> and that's kind of what led me to move to Nashville because I, it's a really weird feeling knowing that like I could, I could die tomorrow and I lived a life worth living like for the rest of my life, meaningful, you know, uh, never, no matter how much I fail in life, my life will never be defined by failure because of this one thing. So where I was looking at it as like, oh man, like I'll never do anything as great. I turned that around and be like, so now I can do whatever I want for, you know, lack of a better term. Like I, I can, I felt like I could take the chance to move to Nashville to try to uh, find my way in entertainment because even if I fail, and like 10 years, I'm moving back to Rochester and living with my parents while I figure something else out. Even though I failed at that, I my life won't be defined by that failure. And that is a really awesome freedom that I feel like people should be able to have without having to do what I did, you know? <laughs> people should feel that kind of freedom to do what would make them truly happy. without. Because I feel like if you want to do something like that, like, and it doesn't have to be you know, I'm being a musician or an actor. It could be owning your own small business, going back to school, whatever it is. And you're just afraid that if you fail at that, that you have wasted that portion of your life trying that worried about what other people will think of you. If you try and fail, uh, that's all toxic way of thinking. And for me, it took like something like that to be like, to put all that out of my head. And like, I don't, cause I wanted to do music from an early age and, I always convinced myself it wasn't possible or that it wasn't going to make money or what are you going to do? Open up a philosophy store type of man type of mentality. And it really just, you know, I was like, I it, kind of like a second chapter. You know, I, I taught, I actually wrote an essay about this experience that you can read at gregrude.com where I get a little bit more detail. That's on the whole R-O-O-D. Thing. R-O-O-D. G-R-E-G-R-O-O-D. G-R-E-G-R-O-O-D. And, uh, why did I bring that up? Because you were talking about your essay and writing about your feelings. Oh, yeah. The, just that I feel that, you know, it really, it's it's allowed me to, oh, I, I talk about in the essay that I, I, I uh, hearken it back to Die Hard, or like movie sequels, where like everything, my life leading up to the transplant was the, was Die Hard 1, you know, it was the first movie mm-hmm. and everything after is Die Hard 2. You know, Die Hard 2 is not as good as Die Hard 1. Everyone knows that, but that's fine. You can still enjoy Die Hard 2. And, like, I've just seen it as, like, a second... It gave me a very clear-cut second chapter in my life uh, where I feel like, you know, I gave my mom new life and she, in turn, gave me new life and the freedom to come here and make awesome friends and get... I never saw myself getting into podcasting and I've loved every second of that. Isn't it great? I love it, too. It's so much fun. Yeah. Uh, So, and, like, I'm going to be starting putting on some live shows around Nashville. So all this stuff is, it's just, I finally had, was given the freedom myself to do something. And I just, I wish more people would do that without having to do, you know. Freeing themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Because I feel like so many people don't. And it's not just, like I said, it's not just entertainment. It could be so, it could be like wanting to have a family like my mom did. Just, but you just do it. Figure out whatever that is. And make steps towards doing it and don't worry about failing because if you know that's setting yourself up only to fail.
yeah. in, my, in my mind. It's lovely. It's a great message. You're, you are remarkable. And the right. story is remarkable. And, I've, and the reason why I wanted to come on and, and like the reason why I, I finally wrote this thing was because I, I had been reading the things that I had written in the past when I was like dealing with some of these things after and uh, realized that enough time had passed because it's going to be four years on August 4th that like I finally had a perspective on it. You know, I had finally enough time and space between it where I actually, you know, if I had talked about it right away, you know, I, I, I didn't have time to learn from it. And I feel like I finally have. And I'm sure I'll even have better things to say about it later in life. But I finally feel like I, I know how it, it's affected me and how I've used it to better myself. And I felt like that was why it was time to, to tell it. Plus, you're a philosophy major, so yeah. <laughs> you're gonna keep reflecting back as you as the years go on. Yeah. By nature of the things that motivate and move you. Right. Yeah, it's lovely. It was. Thank you so much. Tell tell everybody again how they can find you, all your podcasts, all your websites, yeah, yeah. all that, all the stuff. So you can go to gregrude.com. That's R O O D. Um, you can find everything there. I have links to my music. I have. Uh, dr- I do drum videos, Greg Root Percussion on Instagram and YouTube, uh, the Hypothetically Speaking podcast, which, which is, is really funny. And that's that's like my cope. And like I that like your show is so amazing because it's very inspiring and uplifting, and people can can get a lot of value that actually helps them deal with stuff they're dealing with. Where thank you. Hypothetically speaking, is kind of like everyone deals with so much crap in their lives here's an hour just laugh this is silly and that's why i like it and um so that's hypothetically speaking uh which you can find anywhere you find podcasts same thing with three dicks picks like i said it's movies music and more um and i'll put links to everything on hey human podcast links page so perfect i appreciate that yeah uh and yeah that's a that's really that's everything i got going on right now and i just thank you so much for letting me come on honestly the it is my honor to hear your story. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, and I wish your mother a very long life. Yes. And everyone in your family, for that matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. This was very nice. Bye, everybody. Bye.